to another episode of the Comfort Monk Podcast. Today we have a really exciting artist on the show who will be speaking with Eddie. Uh, it's Fat Tony, who is just this really, really exciting and creative uh, hip-hop artist that just put out some new material that I think Eddie will certainly dig into a little bit with, uh, with Tony. But uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about Tony? Yeah, he uh, he's a Houston rapper. Um, he just put out a record called Exotica, which is really excellent. Um, I think the thing that everybody is, you know, seeing that that he's able to do is have these super uh, engaging, like modern storytelling kind of uh, kind of raps. I it it really speaks to me. Um, one of the things that I, that really strikes me is how relatable it is. And, um, you know, the, the kind of day-to-day life that he describes. So, you know, sometimes it's, it's striking and it's moving and sometimes it's just funny. And, um, he does a really good job of that. And also his musical background, I think is very broad and it it shows in the beats that he he pairs with his music. Uh, they're very musical, very melodic, and um, really sort of you know in step with the the lyrical content. So I'm really looking forward to picking his brain about uh, some of these songs. Well, I'm excited for it. Uh, I think it's going to be a pretty cool episode. Just talking to him leading up to this and you know, listening to, you know, that mariachi version of one of his songs. And like, he's just, he's, uh, I don't know. He's really, really creative in his approach to this style of music. And yet, like you said, he's clearly pulling from a really, really deep well of influences. So it's, it's exciting stuff, man. But yeah, this is going to be our episode with Fat Tony. Thank you guys. Let's go here. Walked in the store with 20 for the slots. Left with a dollar and a lotto ticket got. Back in the car and went back to the block. Now we in the house cooking up a new plot. First it was stocks, then we crops. When they both failed, he ain't bailed. Could have invested in CBD, passed on it. When it blew up, he was like, doggone it. Try to make an app, but that backfired. Amazon made one and it was more fire. You can bet he ain't turning down nothing but his collar. Even if he down to his last damn dollar. Wife came to him and said, this ain't cute. You need to go to a support group. When he walked in, he knew he wouldn't be back. And when his wife asked, and he said, fuck that. I'm a gambling man. I'm real interested in, you know, kind of your backstory and everything that sure. led up to you know, Exotica and what you're doing right now. Um, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, honestly, far as where my focus is right now, it's on that album and the Gambling Man Mariachi remix. And because on this album, I work with my longtime producer, who is pretty much the longest music collaborator that I've ever worked with, that I that I still work with, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, talking about the backstory would be wonderful, dude. Ask me anything. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess first thing is, I know you're uh, a Houston guy. Did you grow up in in Houston? I sure did. I grew up in Third Ward, Houston, Texas, and I feel very lucky to come from there. That's awesome. That that's a, a super musical place. Uh, what was kind of the the stuff that was you know banging around your head when you were growing up and starting to to get into your own music? 
Well, growing up, you know, I, I was born in 1988, just to date it. So, like, the biggest stuff going on when I was a kid was, like, Michael Jackson. You know, I was really into kids' shows that dealt with music, too. Like, I loved Alvin and the Chipmunks, and I used to get these Disney videos that were, like, compilations of their cartoons and their movies set to popular songs and i remember one of them was set to private eye by hall and oates and i would play those vhs tapes over and over so i was pretty much just out the gate really into music really obsessed with whatever music i could find which is which is whatever was on you know mtv bet the radio and um when i was coming up Houston was kind of in its golden age, its golden age of hip hop. Like, Screw was still alive when I was starting middle school. I started middle school in like 99. So I was aware of Screw, Screwed Up Click, Rap A Lot Records, Ghetto Boys, Devin the Deuce, Scarface, Willie. You know, I'm naming a lot of the same people because Face and Willie Deer in the Ghetto Boys, but you gotta name their uh, solo shit too. But, you know, little Kiki, Big Big Mo, you know, Destiny's Child, you know, freaking Beyonce grew up the next street over from where I grew up in Third Ward. So it's like as a kid, there were there there were famous artists coming out from Houston that were on the radio and on TV. And I was very well aware that um, they were from where I'm from. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Having a, a hometown with so much, um, you know, so many people to look up to as sort of, you know, r- for lack of a better term, role models for, for doing the kind of thing, um, is pretty awesome. I, you, you would be surprised or maybe you wouldn't be surprised by how many people I've interviewed that have said that, uh, kid shows and the music in kid shows was a huge influence on them. Um, wow. Yeah, I've I've had, you know, interviewed people that grew up in the 70s that have said the same thing. Uh, So it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Um, You know, I I think you definitely uh, a lot of what dictates your life is probably stuff that you hear growing up. You know, that is so funny because I've never told anybody this before about the kids shows. Like I never I am honestly kind of putting that connection together in my head right in front of you because usually I go to think about like whatever music my parents liked right but to be honest my parents music my 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 mom loves music my dad likes music my grandmother liked music they all had records cds but they weren't like super duper music heads who are just playing music all the time and talking to me about it. So me experiencing music was really looking through whatever records they had, picking it out, playing it myself and watching TV. So a lot of my early music discovery was just me going out into the world, seeing what I could find. And I think those like kid shows, I kind of put them out of my mind for most of my life because you know, it's like a child's thing. You don't really think of it as like a serious thing. But the older I get, the the more I want to go down the rabbit hole of who I am as an artist and what really inspires me. And that like kid stuff is powerful. You know, I think it's because of that music. That's why I'm attracted to 
pop music and some melody first and foremost. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's one thing, um, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but one thing that's striking about Exotica is how every beat on it is very melodic and very singable. And, um, you know, there's there's not a lot of, you know, just kind of drum and bass sort of songs. It all has, you know, a keyboard or mm-hmm. something doing a melody on top of it. Um, so that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense that you you had a lot of melody heavy grown music growing up. And that was on purpose too. Like all those melodies, they're all original. They're all composed by my producer Goldeneye. And I was telling him going into this album that I wanted every song to be tuneful and have parts that people could hum or could whistle and make songs that could translate to another instrument. Like I wanted every song in this album to be something that you could sit down, play it, play the piano and, and sing or rap the song. And it's as effective as hearing my version of it, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. That absolutely comes through. Um, so I'd say you and Golden, I definitely succeeded on that front. <laughs> so, thank you. So, uh, you know, going back to your youth, um, what was the first, uh, you know, sort of musical outlet you had? Did you, you know, pick up a guitar or make beats? You know, I, I grew up around the same time as you did. I was born in 90. So one of my first things was having a bootleg copy of uh, Fruity Loops on my computer. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, Fruity Loops is very important to my music because that's the doll that Goldeneye started out using when he was first making beats. So my first album, Rabbit Gab, is all Fruity Loops made beats. My second album, Smart Ass Black Boy, is like a mix of Fruity Loops mixed with like a fucking with uh, Logic 9 at the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But my first musical instrument was the drums. And I remember watching this clip of Nirvana playing at the VMAs and at the end of their set they smashed all their shit you know this this is back in the 90s MTV would play Nirvana content 24 7 like there was always <laughs> their the music videos on or interviews and if there was like a top 20 top 50 countdown of the best songs of the 90s or whatever smells like teen spirit would always be number one you know, people were were still mourning Kurt Cobain's death when I really got into music. So watching that clip, I was like, damn, I, I want to play in a rock band. So I asked my grandmother to get me a drum set and I just banged it to pieces and I jumped on it because I thought that that's what you do. Because that's what I saw Kurt Cobain do. He jumped straight into Dave Grohl's drum set at the end of the performance. Mm-hmm. And... After that, I didn't really touch an instrument until the summer after eighth grade. In middle school is when I started rapping and started deciding to make music. And really in the eighth grade, because I had this moment where I was walking to class from one period to the next, and I had a Walkman, and I would listen to the radio between classes, and the radio played... Oh Boy by Cameron and Joel Santana. And it was my first time ever hearing that song. 
and I loved that song, and I was blown away by it, like from the beat to the lyrics to how witty it was to like the melody in it. It was super catchy, like everything about the song I just loved. And that's really when I decided to make music. I went to class. I told my three friends, I was like, yo, you're going to rap. You're going to rap. You're going to manage us. And I'm going to make the beats. I'm going to be the producer of our group. And that didn't last because I didn't know how to make beats or where to even begin. And this is like, this, this, this is before YouTube and like I couldn't, I didn't know where to even start to find out about how to make beats. All I knew how to do was go to soundclick.com and I found some free instrumentals and I didn't even have, I didn't even have a CD burner. I had like a little toy tape recorder and I held the recorder up to my computer speakers and I recorded some beats and I brought a tape of beats back to my friends at school and that's how we started rapping. Like I would just download MP3s of, of like free beats off of SoundCloud or I'd go on like, you know, Napster or like a LimeWire or something and, and then get like the instrumental to a popular song. And I'd record them to like tapes and, and me and my friends would like rap to them and just, just like freestyle. And we would write songs at school, but the songs would just be lyrics. They would have no beats. Like we would write songs and they'd all be acapellas and we just like tell them to each other. <laughs> That's but, awesome. Um, that was that was like really the moment where I first decided to to make music. And I was also really into punk music at the same time. And I thought, yo, I should get a bass guitar. Cause I had a friend that wanted to get a guitar and I was like, we we could jam together and me and my friend Chris, we could do our like punk rock thing. And then my other friends here, we do rap music. So also from like the onset, I was really comfortable just, just being like, let me try to dive into two things I know nothing about. I'm gonna try to be a rock band and I'm gonna try to have a rap group too. And after I got that bass guitar, the summer after eighth grade, that's when it got really serious. That's when I started to like get a better computer. I got a CD burner. I'm like finally getting some like dolls. I'm recording friends of mine. Like pretty much all through high school was my training ground for how to record myself, how to make music with my friends and how to put on concerts like book concerts, organized concerts. Man, that's wild. Yeah, you were doing that all that while you were in high school. That's pretty crazy. Do you uh do you have any remnants of uh that music from that time period? Do you have any old you know recordings or anything of some of that early stuff? Yes, I do. Actually, I have the first two songs I ever recorded. I remember when I was 15, me and my friend Keith, who went to middle school with me, all those 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 three guys who I was trying to be a rap group with back in middle school, we all went to high school too. So we like carried over our love of making music and our groups and we were trying to be like a little record label. You know, I was calling our label Simply Throwed Entertainment. Throwed is like Houston slang for like something that's like tight or it could mean something's crazy, but it usually means something's good. 
So I was like, you know, we just simply throw. We just fucking dope. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like each of us had like different duos with each other. Like me and me and Keith had our own duo called Dangerous by Design, which is so corny now. Him and Dedrick, another member, they had their own group, too. And then Patrick, who was like our quote-unquote manager figure, he would write verses, too. He was kind of like a puff daddy. Like, he'd rap every now and then. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But we, we, like, carried over that uh, same thing in high school. And in high school, I met some uh, more guys. We were more into, like, the backpack stuff. Like, me and these guys, we really loved tribe mf doom wu-tang clan like more underground stuff and like me and them had a little group called the low ends and that's the first thing that actually like kind of broke out not like broke out like got big but something that we were actually pushing we were getting on on uh shows we would open up for like bigger artists like the boot camp click we would um make like mix mixtapes burn them to like cds sell them at school pass them out at like our school I, I would go to other friends schools to pass out cds too like if i have friends who like went to like a different high school i would pull up like right when they when when their school let out and just like walk with them just pass out shit to kids and just meet kids <laughs> and um yeah that was that was my whole training ground really that's awesome. It, it sounds like you had a incredible like drive and work ethic uh, from a young age, which is pretty cool, especially when, you know, a lot of people that age are just trying to do nothing. Uh, well, I think it's because I didn't hang out a lot. Like I didn't have a lot of kids that lived in my neighborhood or near my house. So really up until maybe the latter half of high school prior to that i pretty much kicked it alone like i kicked it with you know friends at school but i'd rarely see him outside of the school i'd mostly just be at home doing my own thing and that really gave me a lot of time to read about music and download music and learn about music and i think if i didn't have all that time to myself i wouldn't have been able to like apply all these different lines of thought when I actually made music. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so you're, you're doing the low ends and, uh, getting a little bit of attention for that. Um, was that from the low end theory? Absolutely. I awesome. named us after that album. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so that was in high school. Um, where'd you go after that? Did you, uh, you know, stay in the same neighborhood after that and with the same people or were you moving around? Well, I didn't end up moving, but what happened immediately after that is I went to college. We continued to do the uh, low ends group. My like friends, little rock band had like dwindled off. My rap group I was doing with my friends like middle school kind of died off, you know what I mean? But this low ends thing was still happening. But the two guys in it, I don't think they were as crazy about doing music as I was, which was kind of the same thing happened with the other two groups of friends I made music with. Like, they just kind of grew out of it, you know what I mean? And I was more so thinking, like, there's nothing to grow out of. We're just getting 
started like let's keep keep going you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and and it wasn't even like it it wasn't even like at that moment i thought that making music was gonna be the only thing that i do in my life right because i was still going to school i wasn't studying music like i was looking at it like if we had a chance to do music in a serious way that'd be great but let's keep doing our thing going to school and just see what happens but let's not slack on it like let's let's still treat making music as if we're already signed and like we have stuff to do like you know let's let's like i would always want us to go and rehearse i was constantly trying to book us shows to open up for people and i booked what would have been our final show and i remember i couldn't get the other members to come and rehearse. It was me, another rapper, and a DJ, and a producer. But but the producer never came to shows. <laughs> and he like wasn't really around. It was like mostly me, the other rapper, Robert, and the DJ named B-Side. And uh, I was trying to get us to like rehearse and to get ready for the, for the show, and I was mess- messaging them on like MySpace and like texting them and calling their house and I, I wasn't hearing from them sometimes and then I go to the concert and no one shows up but me so at that show I just performed like the couple solo songs I had and I did my like verses from the um songs that we had and it was mad awkward because this is back in the day where like you'd burn a cd hand it to the front of house sound guy and like tell him just just to hit play and just let it roll but because they weren't there from the stage i was like telling him yo uh can you like skip it now to the next one (laughs) and um at that moment i was like fuck it well my friends aren't really interested let me just try to be solo and um i i ended up meeting some guys who were going to college in austin and they invested in me to make my first CD, which is like my demo. It's called the Love Life EP. And from like that, I was just, you know, I was just going crazy with playing shows a lot. Like I was, I would say like around that time, I'd probably be doing something every week. If I wasn't playing a show, I'd go to open mics and I'd go to open mics to, um, you know, perform a song or I just rap a new verse I wrote since like acapella spoken word shit was 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 kind of cool to do with these open mics too. And I just went at it. And um, also during this time, I was talking to Goldeneye over MySpace. Goldeneye is from Atlanta, Georgia, and he was in a group that was mentored by MERS. And MERS was my favorite rapper at at the time, you know what I mean? Because MERS was like, he was into like skateboarding, but he like wasn't lame. Like he was, he was like a dude, he was the closest rapper that felt like my perspective, you know? Someone who has all these wide interests, but they're still from the neighborhood and you can relate to them, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I remember talking to Goldeneye over MySpace a bunch, and I love his uh, group's music. I actually thought that his group was like the next best thing coming. Like I thought they were really about to be 
fucking big and and they they were great rappers they had great songwriting and they were like the first group i met who were interested in a lot of the same music i liked like they on their myspace page you know back in the day you would list what kind of influences you had right Mm -hmm. and like they were listing stuff like three six mafia ugk my Bloody Valentine, Vibes Cartel, Neil Young, David Bowie. And I was like, damn, I've never seen some other rappers my age who are good list these influences. This is really interesting to me. And I remember they also had a lot of wide interest in like rap. Because, you know, at, at that time, rap was kind of splintered. Like there were some people who were in the backpack shit and then people who were not some people who are only into like street rap, gangster rap shit, or they're just into like radio, club music. And I liked it all. And from every region. And they liked liked it all too. And they were just some of the first people I ever met like that. And I remember Goldeneye told me that he was coming to Houston because his group was gonna work with Mike Dean to mix one of, one of their records. And this was gonna be our first time meeting. This was in December of 2007. And right before he got to Houston, Pimp C from the group UGK died, tragically. Mm-hmm. And Mike Dean and Pimp C were friends. So Mike Dean in- ended up canceling all of his appointments and all of his sessions because he was mourning. So when Goldeneye came to Houston, he had a lot more free time and he was like, yo, let's, you know, kick it. At first it was like, yo, maybe we'll get a chance to meet up when he comes. But now it's like, yo, I'm going to have some free time. Let's like definitely link. So I get my mom to go pick him up and take us both to the studio. And I was recording that demo CD that I just told you about, like my first record, right? Mm-hmm. I was maybe like, this this might have even been my first session to make that demo, right? So my mom goes to pick him up. That's how young I am. At, around this time, I'm like 18, 19 maybe, and he's like 21 or 22. So we go pick him up, and it turns out that he's staying at his grandma's house, and his grandma lives a couple streets over from me. And then we get there, and this lady answers the door, it's, it's his aunt, and she's my little brother's school teacher. <laughs> and then my mom's talking to his mom, and like they happen to know some of the same people. It turns out that his mom's family was from Houston, which I didn't know. And they not only were from Houston, but were literally from my neighborhood. So his like cousins, I went to school with them. Like We just found out that we knew all these people who either were our family members or friends or we knew them through school or something or, or our families knew them right and during that trip we just kicked it a bunch and he gave me some beats and we talked a lot about songwriting in a way that my other friends never really talked about songwriting like we talked about themes we talked about different techniques to challenge ourselves to write better, like trying to write songs in in our head first rather than try to write them down with like pen and pad and all this interesting stuff. And it was just, you know, and he wasn't what I thought he would be like because in his music, they were so super like 
player. We're getting girls, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And when I met him, he was more like a music nerd, you know what I mean, than mm -hmm. I expected. And I found that really interesting. And um, we, we just hit it off. And at the end of his trip, he gave me a CD of beats. And he was like, my group is working on an album. You know, maybe you and I can do a project together. It will be like a side project for me. And over the next three years, from 2007 to 2009, me and him worked on an album that ended up being my first album, Rab Rabbed Our Gab, which came out in uh, 2010. And during that time, his group broke up. He ended up moving from Atlanta to Brooklyn. All these changes happened that kind of cleared the plate for us. Like people that I was working with at the time started to lose interest in making music. His group members quit on him. Like, it's kind of funny. Like, we met at just the right time when I needed a producer and he now needed a rapper to produce. Yeah, it's, it sounds incredible. All of the, you know, circumstances, how they lined up. I mean, just the fact that his family was from your neighborhood is, you know, crazy. Um, yeah. So it seems like the stars aligned. Uh, so oh, another thing. Sorry to sorry to cut you off, but another thing about why I really liked him and I liked his group so much is because my dad is Nigerian, his dad is Jamaican, one of the other group members' dad was Nigerian, and the other group member, the uh, white guy in the group, his parents were from England. So all of us were like first-generation Americans, and we were really proud about that. And I had never met people that were interested in that. Like most of the kids that I knew at my school who were African at all, they would downplay that they had an African parent or had African parents, you know what I mean? But I met these guys and, and they were so into like, yo, global this, global that. Like, like, like in their music, they're rapping about being in, you know, Spain or being in like, in, in like Rio or in Colombia or you know what I mean? Like rapping mm -hmm. about this, this, this kind of stuff that I thought was really interesting, but nobody was really flexing yet. And that's another key thing that like made me feel like me and these guys get along in a different way, you know? Yeah, no, that, that, that's really cool. Y'all all had, you know, if not the same, if not a similar background, at least like a similar kind of like circumstance, you know, surrounding you, you being there. That, that's awesome. So, uh, when y'all were working on that first full length, um, were you meeting up to do that in person or is that mostly like sharing files on the internet kind of thing? Man, that was sharing files on the internet, which is something we're very against doing. Like we like to make music face to face, but because of the circumstances and because that kind of started out as like a side project for him. And, you know, like at that time, I didn't know what, what we were making was going to be my first album. I was still making music with a whole bunch of other people and doing all kind of other stuff. I wasn't even really thinking about making an album, really, because that's the time of like the mixtapes. Right. So in my mind, an, an album is what 
happens when you get a record deal. But if you're not signed, you're trying to flood the streets with music. So I was worried about like making songs and just getting them out. And at the end of 2009, when me and him looked at the work we made, we were like, all right, there's something more to this. And also, you know, our, our like time freeing up and being like, yo, we're out of, we, we don't have as many other people to work with now. You know, this, this is like our thing is all that we got mm-hmm. <laughs> right now, you know? Um, but yeah, uh, during that time, it was totally remote. He lived in Atlanta. Actually, the first time I ever got on a plane, I flew to Atlanta to go work with him. That was my first time leaving Texas ever. <laughs> and I was like, I guess 19. And um, yeah, it was it was like I, I, I actually flew out there like a few months after we met. Like we met around Christmas and I think I flew to Atlanta in like springtime. I think I went on my on my like college spring break. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and we were sending files back and forth. I didn't have a studio, so I would just ask friends of mine who were trying to get their own studio going to, like, sell me time cheaply, like, you know, 50 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour. And um, I would go to random-ass studios, and I'd record songs, and I'd send him the files, you know? Mm-hmm. And several of those songs, I record them to totally different beats that he sent me that he later changed. It's kind of like we made all these songs aimlessly for years. And then we looked at what, what we have picked the best of it. He made brand new beats to kind of fit around the vocal, you know, making the beat in, in, in the like key of my voice. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. getting it right. And then we made a few songs where we would like, actively talk about what I was going to do. Like, like actually songs where he was being the producer and not just making beats. Most of those songs, he just made beats and I wrote to him. But in the, at the tail end of making that project is when we locked in and I would tell him certain ideas I had. Like, like I wanted to make a song called You Ain't Fat. Cause even though I've been heavier, no one ever thought that I was like huge. So people would always ask ask me, why are you Fat Tony? Who is Fat Tony? You must not be the right guy. So, and I told him, I want the first song on my album to be called You Ain't Fat, just right out the gate. I mean, right out the gate. <laughs> just, um, uh, just like address that. And yeah. Damn, you That's- are making me remember. You are making me reminisce so much. I'm just fucking <laughs> rambling. I haven't thought about some of this shit in so long. No, it, honestly, it's it's sending me into some nostalgia, too, for that era. And I think us growing up around the same time, it gives me a really clear kind of image of what life was like, you know, at, you know, at all these at all these points in your life. Um, totally. It, it's it's funny. So I me and Dylan recorded an intro for your episode already. Uh, which isn't something we normally do. We normally do it after the interview. And, Mm -hmm. but one of the things I said this afternoon was I was saying how much interplay there is between your lyrics and your delivery of the lyrics and the the beats themselves. Um, So that, that actually makes a whole lot of sense about um, 
Goldeneye kind of crafting the beats around some of the stuff you were doing. Because I think, especially on Exotica, there's a lot of songs where there's like, it's almost like call and response between, you know, the vocals and the music. Um, Man, all of that is on purpose. And that's so cool that you notice that because we fucking spend (laughs) (laughs) countless hours thinking and talking about little things like that, like making these little changes. You know, he, we like, um, when, when we're making a mix, each mix is a letter of the alphabet. And there's so many mixes that like get down to like V and fucking <laughs> shit where, where like we're really nudging, you know, and still to this day, we'll, we'll totally change the beat sometime. Like, like we recorded Jeremy Bixby to a totally different beat. And I remember... I was walking around a park and I was listening to the rough mixes and I felt like the music of that song didn't fit in with the rest of the other songs. And that was months after us making it. So, you know, we, we, we really try to give ourselves time to really think it through and make choices that make sense for the music, especially because we don't just make songs all the time. Like, like I have tons of music. Most of my music is stuff that we've done together because he's produced the bulk of my albums, projects. But I have so many singles and EPs that aren't like that. That are that are just like quick little like shots of me just like getting off an idea or like getting off some like bars or something. But everything that we make has been crafted and it takes time. And there are there are very there are very few instances when we've rushed ourselves and not given ourselves the time. Like like we'll we'll push back on dates and on deadlines just to get it right if we strongly feel like that's what it takes. Yeah, I I think that's apparent in the music. Um I mean, it's definitely apparent in the music. Uh, so, so after your your first record, um, what was the what was the kind of reaction to that? Um, you know, obviously now people know your first record, but uh, did you feel like it got picked up in any way uh, when it was coming out? Man, yeah, I did because so. In uh, Houston, we have the Houston Press, which is like Our Village Voice. Mm-hmm. And I won Best Underground Rapper in 2008, 2009, and in 2010. So like the two years prior, I think that I won just because I played shows a lot and I had that like demo out. And, and I was really, I feel like I was one of the first artists in my generation to really try to get kids in college and high school out to these venues because many like there when when I started playing shows and stuff in Houston I would be the only teenager you know what I mean mm-hmm. now you go to shows and it's almost all young people college kids but it was not like that when I started it was all adults who were like you, you know, adults, they were like 25, but to me, they were like fucking, they might as well be like 50. Mm-hmm. And 
a lot of people my age weren't really interested in like going to concerts. It kind of became, I, I like kind of saw the Houston music scene, music scene skew younger during that like three year stretch. And I think that helped because I felt like I had people in my hometown who were excited about what I was doing. You know, I didn't think that it was gonna break out or do anything crazy, but I knew that I'd make these people happy and I felt really good about that. But when I put out the album, I started to get attention of people that I never really knew like that. Like Bun, Bun B tweeted about my um, first album like the week it came out and I had met him a few times, but I, but I didn't know him yet. Me and him became friends after that moment. Nick catched up some uh, fool's gold wrote about it. Like people started to reach out. And also at that time, gold and I lived in Brooklyn and I separately started to get booked out there. So for like a year before the album came out, I was going to Brooklyn from, from Houston constantly playing at like DIY venues, like silent barn, making friends with, with groups like, ninja sonic you know what i mean like mm -hmm. so so i was in brooklyn the day my album came out maybe i was there that whole week actually and i'm seeing this like attention coming in and like folks from back home are like texting me and telling me they really like it and i've listened to the album over the pandemic which i had in like a long time and it finally hit me why people were fucking with me back then Cause it sounds so good. Like, like parts of that album sound better than some of the shit that we made later. Like, like some of the music that we made later, we were more safe, you know, but on that first album, shit is loud and like, we're just raw and we kind of don't know what we're doing when we're mixing it, but it just banged and just felt good. And Listening to it, I was like, damn, I can hear how hungry I am and how, like, like there's, there's like so many songs on the album where I'm just rapping throughout the whole fucking song and like words are falling off the page and stumbling over each other. It's like everything that I built up was all coming out. And I think that energy and that feeling, even if the songwriting wasn't totally refined, that was addictive. And that feeling, just it's just good. It just feels passionate. You know what I mean? And even the title, Rabbit Gab. Rabbit Gab was a Houston school district literacy thing where you would read a book, write a report, and you'd get a book. And that was something that was happening in elementary school for me. And I remember in middle school, maybe seventh grade, I wrote in my like notebook that I was going to make a song or an album called that one day because anybody who's my age that's from Houston, only they will know what it is and it'll be like our little thing. And I stuck with that. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It sounds like you, you put a lot of, of, you know, yourself and, uh, you know, the place that you grew up into the music. Um, I was wondering if uh, if this is something that you feel like doing. I was wondering if we could go through uh, some of the tracks on the new new album, and if you could just tell me kind of, 
you know, what, uh, what the conditions were like when you were making them, you know, uh, whether it's I you love know, that. a story about the studio or a story about, uh, you know, as you were writing the song, what was going on or something. Sure. Are you down for that? Hell yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, they're, they're also good. It's hard to, uh, hard to pick some. Uh, so I guess starting from the first track, uh, what wake you up, is super gripping. It's super, uh, you know, kind of like punchy and poignant. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's a good place to start because you were just talking about, you know, a decade ago, Bun B, um, tweeting about your first record and now he's on Exotica. How did that come about? Man, you you know, what's really crazy to me that me and go and I can't stop talking about UGK is my favorite rap group. Bun B is on my new album. And me and Goldeneye really met because of his partner, Pimp C, passing away. If Pimp C hadn't passed away, maybe Goldeneye wouldn't have had all that free time for us to connect and lead to what we're doing now. So thinking of that and having... Pimp C's partner Bun start off this album. It it really feels like a full circle thing, and just kismet. And even the circumstances of getting Bun on it, because we recorded this out in fucking Jamaica, and Bun just texted me and happened to be out there, but we had to drive across the country to go get him. It was all this shit. But even before I go into that, making this album was a very different process than any other album I've ever made. So when we made this album, Goldeneye lives in Jamaica. Him and his wife had their first kid six years ago. They were living in New York and decided to move to Jamaica because it's economical and they have family there and they thought it'd be a, a nicer place for their kid to at least have like the first part of their life, right? Mm-hmm. And that made a big strain on us making music because we don't do that remote shit and i remember the last time we were in the studio face to face um before making this album was working on a few songs on the mcgregor park album and he came to houston for the holidays because i was living there at the time still and we made some songs and i went to brooklyn and we made some songs and I remember his wife and their little baby were in the studio and I'm and I remember looking around just being like damn you know everything's changed like not in a bad way but I could definitely see like this is a new chapter of our lives and our relationship will not be the same as it was before because prior to that we do whatever we want you know we could stay out late me and him would just be hanging out like 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 it wasn't he had way less obligations and i had pretty much no obligations besides chasing music you know mm-hmm. and and like a and like a part-time job or some shit <laughs> but um so years pass and then i made two albums after mcgregor park 10,000 hours and and wake up. And I felt like on both of those albums, I was speaking more from personal experiences, especially on 10,000 hours, because at that point I felt like 
maybe I hadn't shared enough of myself in my music because I talk about myself a little bit. But if you look at Rabda Gab, Smart Ass Black Boy, even McGregor Park, a lot of those songs is me taking on a character or, or like talking from the first person of someone that's obviously not me if you listen to like the story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I decided that it would be interesting to go fully into non-autobiographical storytelling on, on this album. I felt like it would be a great balance since the last couple albums were more personal and it would be a good challenge. So that's how we went into this. I brought him to Brooklyn because at this point I, I, I was living there now, you know, it's kind of funny how it took all that time for me to like fully be there. Like I used to go there all the time and crash with people for months at a time. But this was the first time where I was actually settled there. And because he's in Jamaica, it's easy for him to come from Kingston to, to go to Brooklyn. So he came to Brooklyn for a week. I rented a studio and I was like, let's spend a week writing the album talking about ideas and then I have to go on tour when that tour is over I'm gonna come to Kingston and we're gonna record and finalize everything we started so for a week we were at my buddy Steel Tip Dove studio in Park Slope he was the engineer for the writing sessions and me and GoldenEye would just talk about different characters and different stories and different themes that we'd want to put into this album. And over over the years of him living in uh, Jamaica, me and him would still talk often. And we talked about a lot of the ideas that we use on this album. Like, you know, having a 60s French pop influence on Je ne sais quoi. Like that was something that we talked about doing in like 2016, 2017. And as we're getting back into the groove of working together, all those ideas are like flowing back to us. It was kind of like deja vu. Like he even, man, know what's crazy? I was looking in, in my inbox. This fool sent me a version of the Feeling Groovy beat in 2014. Now it's, you know, slower. It's like a little different, but it's essentially the same beat. And I never opened the email. I, I just totally <laughs> missed it somehow. But, you know, that's what's happening on this album. We're like reaching back into old ideas that we never use or, or we kind of talked about and we're talking about and, and we're using brand new ideas, right? And with every song, we would talk about who the people in the song were to death. Like we talk about what they're wearing, what age they are, like all these details that didn't fully go into the final song, but they helped us write it. And as I'm coming up with like lyrics, he he would be very hard on me about what could go and like what could stay. So we talk for hours. And as we're talking, we're fucking around with like a beat. Like I'd play a drum pattern and I'd be like, oh, I kind of want a beat that feels like this. And then he'd add something to it. And then we would sit and like pick through the different sounds. Like, oh, I kind of want the bass to sound like this. I want the bass to sound like that. We would just talk about the beat. We'd get the beat to a skeleton form. 
And then I'd start coming up with uh, lyrics. And I wouldn't come up with verses at a time. I'd come up with like a couple lines at a time. And he'd be very critical on what could stay, what could go. And that's how we shaped the songs. So every song in this album started out like that. And they typically were just the hook and the first verse. Some of the songs, like uh, Gambling Man, we totally finished it the first day. You know, Feeling Groovy, totally finished the first day. But most of the songs, I want to say we had a verse or two done. And, and then my plan was to sit on it while I'm on tour, write some more, send him demos of the additional lyrics I want to add, and then get his, you know, approval on it before we go into the final recording session. So after... After a week of that and going on tour, we had demos of every song and I was fucking stoked. I thought it was really good. It was really rough, but I felt like it was really good because it was so hard to make that the satisfaction I got from meeting every challenge as a, as a writer was enough to make me happy. Like I remember listening to these demos and thinking like, man, if this is my last album ever, I'm going to be so proud of it. Even in, in this infant stage, I'm going to be so proud of this. Like, I really looked at this album like, let me make something that's going to be compelling, going to make me really happy, no matter what happens with the record. And by the time I got to Jamaica, we were in a good groove. We were recording songs, and Bun texts me, that he was in town. So I tell him, yo, you got to pull up the studio. I can't believe I'm in Jamaica. Fucking Bun B is here. I need his ass to come get on my album <laughs> immediately. And, and, and I was also thinking that this would be like a featureless album. Because I'm thinking like, yo, I'm going into this. Like, I got a chance to make one album. What if this is my last album? I don't want no features. It's all about me. It's one producer. It's just us. Like, this is my definitive statement. <laughs> but then when Bun hit, I was like, oh, I got to get Bun B on that. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a but, but, but because having Bun on it isn't a fucking clout thing. It's a respect thing, you know? Mm. So I tell Bun to pull up and he's like, I can't. I'm in Montego Bay which is four hours away from Kingston, maybe four and a half, but we were speeding. And <laughs> we said, fuck it, we're going to drive out there. I rented an Airbnb for one night, and it was like, dude, we'll just record you. But he said, you know, there's kind of a problem. I'm here with my wife. We're here for her birthday. It's just us. I told her that I'd be doing no business while I'm here. No music, no rapping, nothing. We just kicking it on some family, husband and wife shit. <laughs> but I was like, man, you know, I got to get you on here. Like, this is a chance I can't pass. Can, can you give me 30 minutes? So we get out to Montego Bay. We're in the Airbnb. First of all, the Airbnb was in an apartment complex. So we have neighbors. <laughs> we brought two big ass PA speakers like you have at a concert or like a stage monitor, monitor wedge, like, I don't know, 20 inch speaker or something. We brought two of those. 
We brought an interface. We brought some mics from our studio, a bunch of cables, and we outfitted one of the bedrooms in the Airbnb to be studio space. And we were nervous about getting caught because the guard at the front gate was kind of looking at us funny. We were like, damn, what if Bun gets here and we get a noise complaint? Like, you know, I, we, we only got the Airbnb for like, the two of us, what if he comes and they think we're trying to get a guest in here? You know, we were nervous. But Bun found the time to come. He came through the house and he was like, yo, I don't have that much time. Play me the song. I played him the track. I told him what I was looking for from him. I, I basically asked him to sum up what I'm saying in that song because that song is really about gratitude. It's, a, it's about what's motivating you what is what is pushing you to keep going in life and is it something superficial or is it something that makes you feel whole you know people who wake up and they only have money on their mind have a lot more depression than people who wake up and are grateful to see a sunrise or you, you know just 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 have the ability to separate some of the hardships and some of the superficial qualities of their life from just the pure goodness of being healthy and being grateful for the roof over, over your head and just everything that you have. And throughout that song, I'm talking about different people's lives, good and bad, from like a single mother who's having a good, who's, who's having a bad day, sorry, to a homeless man who is smiling and feeling prideful because he loves his you know, clothing, even though you think that he'd be sad to the priest who you think would be perfect, holy, but he's going through stuff and he's feeling like he's been a bad person and he's hurt people. You have a judge who feels like he's hurt people. You have a guy that wakes up without without a leg, but but he's happy, just like showing all these different lives up their ups and downs to really tell you that, hey, everyone is going through something. Everyone has joy and everyone has pain and you should look for that joy in your life. And Bun comes in and is just straight to the point telling you that and he fucking killed it. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I, it, it sounded to me like he had heard your your verses um, before he did it. Did, had you really not heard oh, yes. that at that point? Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Let me, let me make it clear. The song was finished. The song oh, okay. was done because I wanted no features on this album, right? Mm -hmm. The song was done. That that uh, third verse part, we were going to have a horn player come and play a solo over it. And there's that solo that is still happening at, at the end of uh, Bun's verse. No, actually, sorry. The solo still plays under Bun because there's a musical change there. But we were going to go all out and like make it like a big thing that was just focused on this crazy solo happening. Um, so, the, so when I'm playing him the song, he's hearing the verses, he's hearing the chorus, and I'm telling him what it's about. The whole time that the song's playing and I'm talking to him, he's typing in his phone. He asks to hear the song one more time. He's just typing away. When the song finished, he was like, all right, I'm ready. Got up, nailed it perfectly the first take. Wow. That's awesome. And honestly, I'm so glad that we 
had Bun do it because we figured out that a piece of studio gear that we were using at the actual studio was broken. For this mobile setup, we used an interface GoldenEye had that he thought wasn't a big deal because it was portable, but it sounded incredibly better than what the studio had. The studio had a bit of older gear. And it was in that moment that we got Bun's clean ass vocals that we were like, we have to go and re-record the entire album. The album was finished by Ooh. this point. The album was finished. So in, and like we had a week left. So so we were thinking, yo, we're we're done early. Let's just use this last week to like, you know, wig out. Like, like let's get people to come in here and play horns. Like, let's just have some fun making arrangement choices, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, now we're like panicked. Like, yo, Tony, you have to go in and, and re-record everything. But not just re-record it, but get it perfect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. That I can imagine. Week, that first week when we actually recorded we would spend a whole day on a single song. It's like just really getting me to hit the mood, really, to like get into the right mood of what the song needed. Wow. Well, you, you pulled it off in the end. I'm sure that was stressful as hell, though. <laughs> Man, I don't know how we... I mean, you know, honestly, I think that at that point, we were like... You know, I think with, with this album, we were looking at everything that we've been through in music, period. Because we hadn't made an album with each other in a few years. We had this setback with having to re-record it. You know, we're, we're, we're out in Jamaica. Like, we have, it's a really important project for us. And I think at that moment, we're just like, you know, fuck it ain't no way nothing can hold us back and we also kind of felt like you, you know if this album is going to be as special to us as we think it is it's kind of natural for these obstacles to come you know there were mm -hmm. other moments where we're like we had a hard drive crash we thought that we lost the whole album sessions there was another moment where like we had a problem with the studio computer and I needed a hard drive, but no one had one. It was like 11 p.m. in fucking Jamaica and everything is shut down. We drove all over town trying to find a fucking flash drive <laughs> so, we, so we could drive all the way back to the studio to save that day's work. I mean, there, was, there were all these little problems, right? So we just felt like, yo, nothing can fucking stop us now. We got to do it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, that, that's an awesome story. Uh, I I like that you you were talking about the first song and uh, mentioned gratitude. We actually, uh, last year, Comfort Monk, we put out two, um, two compilation records. And uh, we actually called them the, the Gratitude series. Uh, that's dope. So that's that that's big big on our minds as well. Um, oh yeah, I actually uh, just to go off on a tangent for a second. I had sort of a similar thing, gear thing happen, where I've got a record I'm getting ready to put out pretty soon, but like probably three months ago I'd recorded most of the guitars for it, 
and then I got a new mic and I recorded mm-hmm. one track on it and I was like, this sounds so much better. I'm going to have to redo all the other, <laughs> all the old guitar tracks. And I ended up literally redoing every second of guitar on the album uh, with the new mic. <laughs> and did it feel worth it? It sounds awesome now. So yeah. It, See, if I may say so Man. myself, it, it made a pretty big difference. And I, I think honestly, I think it saved me, enough time in the mixing stage that it probably, uh, you know, it probably wasn't that much more time that I spent on it. But, and honestly, all that shit's worth it because now you know those songs better. You know what I mean? Like for, for me having to do this album twice and having to really learn the lyrics before I go in the studio and like having shit ready, like it's, it's like really made it so now when I rehearse for like a concert, virtual show or otherwise, I am better equipped than any album I've made before where it's more of a struggle to find out what the lyrics are and like what I did, like because I lived with it so much and I said it so much, I started building up the muscle memory to execute. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, do you uh, do you have some time to go go through a couple more tracks on the record and talk about them? Of course, you know, man. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate what you said about this album earlier. It really showed me that you listened and you connected and you could understand what went into crafting all the details in this album, and that really means means a lot. And that's that is honestly what. GoldenEye and I were looking for with this album. Like, that's what has made us happiest when people step to us and they not just say that they like the album, but they list why and they're picking up on all the things that we worked so hard on. So thank you. Hell yeah. Well, you did all the hard work. Uh, It's a lot easier to listen to it than make it. (laughs) Man shit don't don't play yourself because the listener has a burden too you you have so much music out there you have so much shit to compete with you you know i think i think that it's equal honestly i think the relationship between the artist and the audience you know we're equally working working for each other and with each other and we're trying to both give each other something and i think it takes work on both ends you know hell yeah well, so you were uh, you were talking about sort of the the character driven approach of I won't say just this record. I, I think a lot of your music has this sort of abundance of you know characters and like these kind of worlds that they live in. Um, I think you know one of the most striking characters on this record is the Jeremy Bixby uh, mm. kind of person, and I I think that it's kind of a universal person. Like I I think that most people that listen to it would sort of maybe have somebody in their life that they could kind of compare that to. Um, Goody two shoes. Yeah. So, uh, so I guess, uh, you know, what was the story behind that song? Like, um, you know, when, when did you start, uh, you know, formulating, formulating the concept behind the, the Jeremy character? 
So me and Goldeneye were in the studio and this was like one of the, the last days of our writing sessions. And we were just talking like, yo, what's some bugged out shit that we can do? Like from a conceptual level, like what is something that's kind of like out there that we can do? Cause we felt like we didn't have a lot of really out there concepts. You know, I think the concept of storytelling is kind of out there for some people because it's not utilized as much as, as it used to be. But for the most part, in this album, we have characters that people have seen before. A judge, a cop, a gambling man, a guy that's like feeling groovy, cheating, you know, characters that you've seen before. But a song about a t-shirt in a thrift store that's some shit that we hadn't heard before. And we started talking about the thrift store thing. And then that led to like, yo, do you ever see a shirt and like wonder what it's about? And then I was talking about some like sweater I bought that, that didn't have a tag that I loved. But I was like, man, I have no idea what this brand is, like where it's from. Like I can't Google it. Like, you know, just like thinking about that. And that kind of led to, oh, what if we made a song a shirt and the backstory of the shirt and then we're thinking like what is what kind of shirt could have a backstory a campaign shirt could have a lot of a backstory especially if the politician has an interesting life and then we start talking about like well what if it's a campaign of somebody that failed but what if him failing isn't something that we want you to feel sorry for him for. Like, we're not saying that he failed and, and like, you need to feel pity for him. What if he failed because he was kind of, like, a shitty guy? Like, like he wasn't bad. You know, he, like, didn't do anything illegal or do anything wrong, but, you know, he's just kind of, like, fake. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> the Jeremy Bixby character is about a person who is a goody two-shoes, who tries to do everything right and thinks that everything's coming for them. And when they have a moment of disappointment, they go off the deep end. What we're trying to say with Jeremy Bixby is, really, you shouldn't be like him. Like, if you catch an L, or something doesn't work out, and it's one of your first times trying it out, maybe try it again. You know, in my mind, Jeremy didn't want to run for office again and became bitter because all of his reasons for being a politician were all vain. In my mind, Jeremy Bix Bixby just wanted to be a politician because the mayor stepped to him when he was in college and, and gassed him up and was like, yo, it could be this big thing. He immediately leaves that conversation and convinces his friends to work for him. You know, right off the bat, he's like, me, college kid, I'm going to run for mayor, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to get people to work for me. I got my neighbor to invest her, her life savings. Like, I mean, I think it really, it's a special kind of person who's going to take your elderly neighbor's life savings to invest yeah. in your... <laughs> To get to get some merch. <laughs> to, in, <laughs> to invest in your campaign shirts. Like, yeah, you I mean, I think that. 
I think one of the most striking lines of that song is the thing about the merch because it kind of like shows like like the vanity and sort of like superficiality of it is that like the big kind of defining moment of like oh this is a campaign isn't you know defining a platform or anything it's like I you know it, I could just imagine like all of the cardboard boxes full of like branded pins and mouse pads and t-shirts yep. and you know stuff like that yeah 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 and uh the 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 actual piece of merch that i made for it i, I kind of mimicked 70s campaign because i feel like you know you know 70s fonts and stuff because i mm-hmm. feel like the late 70s 80s well not maybe late but just 70s period 70s 80s that is when i start to see the kind of politicians rise that really mimic this kid, you know, like this, this, this kid could have totally come up in Reagan era, Clinton era, you know, one of those eras where like the politician is front and center and they're a star and not just a politician. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's funny. Uh, yeah. I, I love that character. And that song is uh, really makes you kind of double take when it when it starts it's, unfolding it is interesting hearing what people think about that song because you know one thing that we purposely set out to do is not to place judgment on any character within the songs we never say that jeremy bixby's bad i never say that the dad that's trying to cheat on his wife and leave his family and feeling groovy i never say that he's bad I never say that gambling man's bad. I want to leave it all on the listener. And Jeremy Bixby was one of those songs where I felt like it really showed the personality of the listener. Because so many of my friends stepped to me with a different opinion of that song. Several of my friends told me that Jeremy Bixby is a song about how things never work out right in life. And how even if you work hard, you can't get what you want. And I'm like, damn, that's so interesting. <laughs> that, that's your take on it. And then other people saw it the way I intended. Like, you know, he's like kind of vain. And it's funny because the, the friends of mine that um, saw it as like, you know, a good guy who, who just didn't get what he deserved. They are definitely people who are like that in real life. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like a, a psychological experiment uh, that you can analyze. Yeah, man. Play this song for your friends and be like, so what do you think this song's about? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I do, like, personally, I think the, the character's a little bit tragic. Like, there is a part of me that feels bad for him, you know? Definitely. Um, it's not, it's I'm not, not 100%, I'm not 100% just laughing at him, you know? Um, that's the thing he is not malicious which is which is why I think that's a choice that we made with all these characters too like we never want to say that they did something that would obviously be bad like in Feeling Groovy the guy never gets with the girl far as you know he never cheats on his wife or leaves his family he just talks about it Gambling Man seems like oh this is gonna be a bad guy maybe he's a criminal but in the whole song, he just tries to, like, buy crypto and buy <laughs> lottery tickets and fucking... He's, he's just a... He's like a, like 
a ne'er-do-well hustler. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, another one, um, uh, another one that, that sticks out, uh, that I want to kind of feel out your kind of intentions on, um, je ne sais quoi. Uh, mm. so one, one thing that I, I always feel, you know, uh, about kind of more like aspirational rap that's about like mm-hmm. being rich and stuff, it doesn't really strike a chord with me, um, in terms of like my ideal life is not having six Lamborghinis sort of thing. Uh, but there's a line in that song where it's, I, excuse me as I like misquote you, but it it says something about like drinking champagne in your bedroom. And I was like, that's like a real life, like fun luxury thing that like normal people, you know, most people, could afford to buy a bottle of champagne and just like sit in bed and watch TV and drink it or do other bedroom activities and drink it. But it seems so it's like this like sort of luxurious thing that's approachable. That's a misquote, but that is definitely (laughs) how, how I feel in my real life as a person. You know what I mean? Like I definitely look at things that might be, regular to somebody as you know something that i can kind of flex not publicly but for myself like i can afford to like do this kind of regular but nice thing for myself because i work hard it makes me feel good you know but the actual lyric is it's like you and your boy sharing one bedroom as the lights flicker he shares the last piece of food Long day at work, got you stressed and you mad, but you come home, son says you're the best dad, and it ain't a regular thing that occurs. It's that motherfucker's very first words, two nights lost Vegas, first night lost everything, second night one big bought her a wedding ring. You put it all on the line and you thought you went broke, but the taste of defeat ain't on the menu this week, this beat has a certain je ne sais quoi. Ah... Uh, Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I misheard that, uh, but I definitely got the same feeling from the song <laughs> I think that you're going for. No, totally. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the whole point because I mishear lyrics sometimes too, but the feeling that it gives me is the right feeling and it works, you know? <laughs> yeah. And honestly, there's, there's something about hearing somebody rap and hearing them take a step back and like enjoy the beat. You know, yes, <laughs> that's something that doesn't happen enough. That was so funny to me, honestly, when when we did that, I think I Goldeneye came up with that with that phrase, and 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 like we were making the beat, and I was like, man, man, this beat just got me feeling like blah blah blah. I'm just feeling. It's just got me feeling good, but because that that beat started out with me playing the kick and snare. Like, the foundation of that beat is, like, a fucking Ramon song or, like, certain Prince songs, like, the New Wave-style Prince songs, like, Let's Go Crazy, where it's, like, kick, snare, kick, snare, kick, snare, kick, snare. And I was playing that, and then he was fucking around on the keys, and he started playing the main melody. And I actually filmed him, like, as it was coming together in his mind. 
And then I would just listen to like the like the fucking piano reminded me of like a hotel or some fancy shit. And I'm just like, man, this beat just got me, you know, and I'm like, man, I got to shout you out on this beat. And he's like, what if through throughout the whole song, every verse ends and you referring to how this beat is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so we ran with that. And that song, I want to say. As of right now, I think that's my favorite song I've ever made because it flows like poetry. Like I look at that song like a dense poem about redemption. You know what I mean? Every character in it thinks that shit is about to go bad, but then something beautiful happens that makes them feel like everything is okay. And sometimes the the beauty is simple, like you and your friend are broke and, and he's sharing his last piece of food with you. Or you coming home, hearing your child speak for the first time, seeing your wife have your first kid, getting your first house, the feeling of riding your first bike, the feeling of driving your first car, the feeling of quitting cigarettes, the feeling of getting out of jail, the feeling of coming out of a coma, the feeling of seeing something beautiful when you take a hike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you and, know, um, another part that really resonated with me was the, you mentioned the, the first house thing. Uh, I remember me and my wife bought a house, uh, I guess two years ago now. And I remember the first meal that we had in that house. (laughs) Dude, me and my girlfriend bought a house when I was writing this album. So I definitely, that is a lyric that I was definitely thinking about, like, oh, I can't wait till we move in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially after, like, a long, hard, you know, a long day of hard work moving. And then you finally can sit down somewhere and eat some takeout or something. Yeah. And I was really thinking of one of my heroes, Q-Tip, when I was rapping that song. And like my head, I was aping his like rhyme style. It's, it's like you and your boy sharing one bedroom. Like I could hear him flowing the same way that I did on that track. There's, there's, there's two moments where I tried to do that on this album. On this song, I'm trying to be like Q-Tip. And on Jeremy Bixby, I'm trying to be like Andre Nicotina. Gotcha. That I I thought you were gonna say Andre three thousand with that one. <laughs> no, or when you started, Andre Nicotina. Especially his uh, song. Really, it's all about this one song of his that inspired that. It's called Train with No Love, and it's a story song where he raps in the same cadence throughout the whole song which is what I do on Jeremy too. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so cool because it directs you as a listener to the story. And it's not about the flash. It's not about me rapping fast or doing anything crazy. It's, it's about you following this story and the concept and the story is what's supposed to grab you. Not just me rapping fast and yelling and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a like one of those like older Bob Dylan songs. Like that it's was, about like presenting this thing. We were thinking about we were talking about him. We were talking about Neil Neil Young. Talking about Bob Marley. Those are the kind of storytelling songwriters that we were talking about and 
thinking about when making this album? Hell yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, I guess I, I, I didn't know that uh, Goldeneye was from Atlanta, but one thing about your music, I, I personally, I, I grew up, you know, in South Carolina. And so, of course, we listened to all the music out of Atlanta. And nice. one of the big ones, you know, growing up was Outkast, obviously. Um, yeah. And so that, you know, they also uh, have a very kind of like, storytelling vibe about them um yeah man and so i i wouldn't be surprised if uh golden eye had a little of that uh no we fucking did in him <laughs> yeah the first time i heard the art of storytelling part one by outcast i was in high school on a speech and debate tournament trip and it made me cry andre's verse about the childhood friend of his who he was hoping to reconnect with one day he found out that she died in a in a very tragic bad way and when he said that i just teared up and i and i still tear up here in that part because even though it's a story and a song i've heard many times before it just never it just always hits me you know, from like the way that he's phrasing it, even it just feels real. And prior to our writing sessions, we spent like the first couple of days just jamming music, and we jammed Outkast, Skew It on the on the Barbie like a hundred times. Hell yeah! We listened to Who Run It by Three Six Mafia like a like hundred times. Like honestly, Three Six Mafia Who Run It was like the guiding song for this album even when we had the album mastered we were asking the engineer to make it punchy in the same way that that song is right mm -hmm. and we just love the feel of it the tempo of it every day we would get in the studio like at 9 a.m and we'd be blasting the fuck out that song <laughs> <laughs> and i also used to watch these uh it's it's this one video of a houston rapper little flip rapping outside of a car and it's from a dj screw movie it's like a vhs tape um damn i can't think of the. i think it's called screwed up damn i can't think of the movie right now but it's on you it's on youtube just search little flip freestyle and he's rapping outside a car and he's young it's it's like before he was on major label or any of that shit before beefing with like ti like he's probably like 20 right mm -hmm. and he is just rapping with so much joy and so much whimsy and it's and you can just tell that he loves rapping and we would watch that video and just be like man that's the mode that i need to be in when i'm approaching these songs like could I remove myself from these beats and just go and like rap this shit to somebody and it's and it sounds cool or sounds fly or sounds impressive or they can follow along? Basically, everything that I say on this album, I should be able to say it a cappella and you not get bored or your mind wander. Because in that little flip freestyle, he's doing a lot of the kind of shit I'm doing on Genesee Qua, where he's going from like. Image, imagery to imagery, topic to topic. He's kind of flipping through all these different things while staying within certain moods and themes. And it was very natural for him and it was super impressive. And it's like, 
that's that's like one great raw clip of a rapper. Like years from now, if people want to know what rap music is, looking at that clip would be a great example. <laughs> Hell yeah! I I I think that that probably for you probably goes all the way back to your first rap group when you were saying y'all didn't really have a way of making beats to start out with, so everything was kind of acapella. Wow. You're fucking good. <laughs> nah, totally. Totally, yeah. I mean, I think the I think the more the older I get, the more I try to go back into the mindset of how I approach music when I, when I was young, you know, from like the high school age through Rabbit Gab. That era, it's just so much fire and so much joy about ra- like you can just hear it when like a motherfucker would rap for free. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, you can feel it when, like, a guy is just like, man, I'll be rapping in the fucking mirror. I rap at the open mic. I go play a show. I'll do whatever. Like, I'm trying to flow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The kind of guy who um, wouldn't shy away from a random cypher at a house party. (laughs) (laughs) But it's but it's not whack, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Well, Tony, I really appreciate you uh, taking so much time to talk to me today. Man, this is fun. You are incredible. Hey, you are in fucking incredible. I'm just I'm just the mirror that's reflecting you. So. Holy shit! Okay. <laughs> Thank you, man. Seriously. Um, and I appreciate you working with my schedule. Sorry to cut this off and then oh, it was it was nothing, again man. Again, a few times, but you know, a lot of shit's going on right now. Yeah, yeah. Man, thank you for loving the album, man. I, but I want to ask, what do you think about Gamble Man, the uh, Mariachi remix? So I I had heard your album before uh, Dylan told me that he had booked you for the show. But when he sent me that, I was like, I cannot believe I haven't heard this before. <laughs> it's so yeah, awesome. Dude. I I don't know how it uh, how I, I heard the album, but I hadn't heard that uh, that remix. But uh, Dylan said you might be down to let us uh, use a couple clips of it for bumper music. For Absolutely. This. Hell yeah. Well, that'll be awesome because uh, it's always good when our listeners can get a little sample of what's going no, on. Anyone out there that is at all curious about me from this interview, check out the Gallon Man Mariachi remix and check out the album Exotica. Those are wonderful places to start with my music. It's where I'm at right now with my music. And I really feel like it's the best representation of who I am and the best representation of where I want to go in music. You know, me and GoldenEye really want to go down this route of making stuff that is tuneful, that is musical. And I think what we've done on this album, coupled with the traditional sounds in the Mariachi remix, I think that combined is where we're trying to go next with our music. Hell yeah. Well, yeah, we will uh, point our listeners in the right direction. Um, and 
I look forward to talking to you again, man. Thank you so much. Peace. I'm a gambling man. Down to try my luck. Just to make a buck. I'm a gambling man. Put it all on the line. Make it back next time. I'm a gambling man. Down to try my luck. Just to make a buck.